Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday where, among other things, we discuss the contents of our weekly roundup post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of a summary of what we think the Christian cosmopolitan with a grace-infused spirit and passion should pay attention to out in the world of the interwebs. We've got two great conferences coming up. By the way, if you want to connect with other Mockingbird uh, readers and listeners, one in Tyler, Texas uh, next weekend, and one in New York City in April. So April 14th through the 16th, all the information for the conferences, as well as the menu, is on our website, mbird.com. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, David Zoll and Sarah Condon. But first, a short conversation with David Dark, who has a new book out called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. If you like the interview, you can listen to the unedited, long-form version of it on my new podcast, Give and Take. You can find the links to the podcast in the show notes and on our website, mbird.com. And now, my friends, David Dark. Welcome uh, to my guest here, David Dark. David, that is, first off, I just want to say, that's a great name. It is a gift of a name. It, it, if it hadn't arrived upon me, I would have to invent it. Yeah. But it's, um, it just is, and I'm grateful for it. I feel like it's a Marvel comic kind of name, which is very pleasing to me. Well, and you could have, with a name like that, it's sort of like Jessica Jones. It could be your superhero name and your functioning everyday name. I mean, not everybody has that kind of thing. For no, Monica. they don't. And I'm awfully grateful for it. Amazing nomenclature. So you are the author of several books, The Sacred Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, The Sacred Revealed in Radiohead, The Simpsons, and Other Pop Culture Icons, The Gospel According to America, A Meditation on a God-Blessed Christ-Haunted Idea, and most recently, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Yes. Great title and great cover. By the Thank way. you. So in this book, it seems like if, 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 let me see if I, I'm, I, I'm getting at, at the point of what you're trying to do. Cause I think it's a really unique book in that you have a bunch of people, kind of traditionalists who sort of defend religion, uh, mm-hmm. even if they're atheists, you know, in the culturally conservative yeah. way, religion's good, religion's good. And then you have a bunch of detractors. Yeah. It's, it seems like you're kind of esteeming religion unveiling it, but also offering a critique of it at the same time. I think so. Um, Fairly early on in there, I note that um, Karl Marx said that the critique of religion is the prerequisite of every critique. And when he puts it that way, he's noting that religion, um, I wouldn't say that the book is for or against religion. I would argue that religion is so broad of a category. Um, I define it as controlling story, as in throw a rock and you'll hit one. Everybody's got one. Our controlling stories change. Um, It's kind of a value neutral but universal concept that um, gets especially tricky when we pretend that it's a problem that other people have, but we don't. I'm not trying to get anybody to start calling themselves religious 
but I am arguing against ever using it as a um, adjective that we apply to others without feeling the pinch of it ourselves. Now, how would you distinguish between the kind of universal, like homo religious, you know, the, the, the universal yeah. nature of, of, of controlling n- narratives and things like that yes. and being part of a religious tradition? Sure. Well, tradition, I think of um, Star Trek as a tradition. Doctor Who is a tradition. If you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan, you partake of a tradition. So tradition, particular traditions, um, would define the content of a religion. Um, I'm formed and nourished and enriched by more than one tradition. But like religion, tradition, you've got bad ones and you've got good ones. Um, there's traditions that we wish would end, and there's traditions that we don't have much in the way of literacy and civilization and um, a reverence for human beings without particular living traditions. Um, I would even say that we're always in our taking in of books, voices, musicians, we're kind of um, traditioning our way out of um, narrow ways of conceiving ourselves. So tradition is kind of that meteor concept within the abstraction of religion. Yeah, you in the in, in the beginning of the book you talk about religion as witness. Yeah. Which I found to be I mean as a fan of Karl Barth's theology, I found that really helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. it kind of talk about the way in which you kind of talk about the way in which uh religion and religious expression kind of makes our commitments to those big stories that make our lives meaningful and drive them kind of it, it externalizes them. It makes it puts into relief. Yeah. That's um, right. That's right. And wit, I think witness is the most, and I do, I largely derive it from William Stringfellow, who seems to have gotten it from Karl Barth as well, this language of witness. Um, because your witness clearly isn't just what you say you believe or hope to believe. It's what you do. It's the sum of the whole of who you are. And one of my formulas for that is what you believe is what you see is what you think is who you are. And um, your witness can't be divided between I've got my business over here where I pay people a particular wage and then I go to this worship service and that's where my religion comes into play. I think witness is a, a fantastic word for overcoming those divides because one's witness actually knows no division. And it's often um, others are in a better position to tell us what our religion what our witness is or has been, because we're not always the best judges. You say in um, one of the opening chapters of your book, you say that you ask us to picture an 80s era 17-year-old in horn-rimmed glasses and a maroon vest sitting in a box office waiting for a late-night movie audience to appear. It could have been The Princess Bride or Top Gun or No Way Out. The responsibility that befell me was to sell tickets, eat popcorn and talk to customers about the only thing I really wanted to talk about anyway. So if you were caught in a desert Island and had to have one of those movies, the princess bride, top gun or no way out, assuming you have a DVD player too on the desert Island or something like that, which one is, I think it has to be princess bride because princess bride rewards repeated viewing, um, more than top gun or no way out by a landslide. Um, yeah, definitely Princess Bride. That's it's a gift that keeps on giving. Where where do you see as as someone who's both a student of 
pop culture and of religion and theology. Where do you see the bright spots on our cultural landscape for um, religious expression? Like, what do you think is, gosh, there's religious expression at its best, brightest, most hopeful. And where do you see like the trouble spots? Where's, where are the things that, gosh, you know, a few more expressions like this, religion might go out of business. Hmm. Um, yes. Well, um, one that has been sacred and valuable and instructive to me is Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. I think of that album as a very, very positive, very prophetic um, religious expression that um, I keep going back to. Um, John Darnielle's Wolf in White Van, oddly. Um, All the Mountain Goats music, too. Um, Going off the rails, the elections that we're dealing with right now and the way the Bible um, gets appropriated to, um, you know, assure particular people or try to persuade particular people that God is with particular candidates um, and what appears to be so much of the electorates sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of whoever um, brings God most unthoughtfully into their rhetoric. So I, I wish um that there, I wish that the word evangelical, for instance, meant something like personally and practically persuaded by Jesus and the prophets. Um, but it seems so clear that we're so far away from the word functioning in that way in this election. Yeah, you tell this moving story in the book, it really interesting as a kid, realizing you had missed communion. Yes. Uh, it, it, you're kind of overwhelmed with a sense of urgency to go and you, you kind of grab crackers and grape juice and, uh-huh. and go out and smoke. I, I found that the way you describe it was uh, both like sympathetically to your sincerity and also kind of deconstructing religious practice and devotional at sure. the same time, which is really wonderful. Uh, what's, what's your religious practice like now? What's your day-to-day spiritual? What, what kind of church do you go to? How do you, how do you express your controlling story? How, what's its witness um, yes. What's okay. it look like? Well, my witness is on all the time. I say there's no off switch to witness. I would say that we're never not worshiping in one way or another. So my still a big re I teach a Bible class, so I have to read scripture. But um we it happens that my family, we're PC USA, Presbyterian Church USA. We go to one of those congregations. Um but we also read to each other. We, um, I watch Walking Dead on Sunday nights sometimes. Well, I mean, well, I often see it online afterwards. Um, we watch a lot of movies. Um, I'm involved in a class, a Wednesday evening class, um, that meets in a prison. Uh, part of my church would be the incarcerated community that I see once a week. Um, you and Carl Hart, another, another, uh, another yeah, I guess so. It's yeah, I like that. Um, so I, I don't, I, there is no dividing, um, that there is no practice in my life that I would say is not religious because I think religion, my, my witness is on all the time. But yeah, so we're Presbyterian. I sometimes say that I'm high church and a Baptist. Um, but yeah, every week, lots of Bible study, that kind of thing. So that's sort of uh, you've you've kind of uh, 
developed from uh, from that kid's spirituality and, and yet built on it, it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. I would still, it would be enough of a hang-up really getting church right that when my kids were younger, they always referred to it as church building. I wouldn't let them refer, and not in a in a overly anxious way, but I wanted them to think of church as the community of people that we had pizza with and watched uh, Parenthood with, you know, on the Friday night, just as much as the people that we sit with on a Sunday morning. Because I do think of church as a um, a communal verb rather than um, one particular meeting once a week. You know, it's interesting because I'm a, co- a huge comic book fan. I was as a kid. And I feel like, again, we're in the golden age of comic book uh, remix, especially with Netflix. I mean, Daredevil, I think, was maybe the best sure. thing I've seen. Do you think Superman will ever be a re- as relatable as some of the other characters? Or is it just too much? Is it just too much of a problem-free existence that you kind of have to artificially make Superman's life complicated? Yeah, it's tough. It's like I want to give it to Alan Moore. I think with um, this may get too obscure, but his Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen I think was the closest we got to uh, a a real life Superman type figure who is trying to deal with relationships. I know Alan Moore um, took an issue or two of Superman that were among the best, but I, I Superman is indeed a tough one. I'm hoping that this next film will give us something new. Um, you got to make him more alien. You got to make him more estranged. You got to make him a little more like Frank Miller's Superman in Dark Knight, where he is a superpower who gets co-opted by um, a nation state superpower and needs a relationship like his relationship with Bruce Wayne yeah. to get him to think hard about. Um, I mean, there's that great scene in Dark Knight when um, they're speaking as Clark and Bruce and Clark is saying, listen, Bruce, you need to lay sort of a pipe down a little bit on all your vigilante activity. I don't know what they might make me do, to which Bruce Wayne says, Clark, they can't make you do anything, (laughs) which I thought was just a great line that has a lot of parallels in our own lives, all of the things that we think of as necessities or um, that I have no choice, I have to do this. Um, And we we don't look hard at our own agency a lot of the time. And I I mean, I was, I guess I was 16 when I read that exchange, but I knew that something profound about human culture was being um, lifted up. That graphic novel was amazing. And when Green Arrow, one-armed, shoots the arrow with a kryptonite That's arrow. right. I mean, that is so amazing. Uh, uh-huh. It's just unbelievable. And there's the implication. I mean, they never spell it out, but you it's implied that Superman himself had something to had do. Had maimed him, yeah. Yeah, yeah had yeah. maimed Green Arrow to yeah. stop him from doing what he was doing. Do you think that, like, one of the things that superhero uh, comic books and, and, and their adaptations – teach us it's like a lesson about idolatry i think we always think if we if i had like as kids if i had a superpower if I, my life would be fixed it would be great and then the great thing is like a lot of times like with Sp- spider-man it actually makes his life worse a lot of the time yeah that's right <laughs> the, the, the power doesn't really uh get rid of his problems it actually sometimes magnifies them that's right now that um 
recently there was a Hulk series in which Bruce Banner um, was fed up with Reed Richards and Tony Stark and Hank Pym getting all of the credit for scientific innovation. And he hired himself out to S.H.I.E.L.D. saying, I will let you use me as Hulk to put out various fires, but you have to give me a lab and a team of technicians. <laughs> and it was, just this, it was one of the first times a Hulk story um, had gone in a, a new direction. And at one point when Bruce Wayne, excuse me, not Bruce Wayne, when Bruce Banner is having an exchange with, uh, I don't know, one of Submariner's villains or something, Bruce Banner said, well, you got to understand power is relative. And for, <laughs> for Bruce Banner to say power is relative makes it this really um, evocative proverb about celebrity being a president, being a billionaire, that we we speak of power as if we know exactly who has it and who doesn't. But with great wealth, with public office, with um, even being the CEO of something, you're no longer as free to speak truthfully about what is. And you're not even free in so many ways to even think clearly. So often ideas are placed before people and it's as if it's hard for them to see things when their paycheck depends upon not seeing it. And I think um, superheroes definitely can take us. They are, comic books are a kind of wisdom tradition insofar as they get us to think harder about our own liturgies, our own compromises, our own everyday um, misperceptions. What's the biggest deception you're sort of vulnerable to temptation as to somebody who's a scholar and also a scholar who's a, who's widely read. I mean, people actually, mm-hmm. normal people actually read your books. Uh, what's the biggest temptation as someone in your shoes? The biggest power temptation or deception that can kind of run, a, you know, make your controlling story kind of run aground? And, and yeah, that's off. a very good question. I thank you for that. I think one of my temptations is to think that I have an intelligent thing to say to every situation. Um, the temptation to weigh in as if I'm an expert on something when I haven't really begun to think it through. And I guess in our day, the, the big temptation would be to tweet or, uh, to put something on Facebook, um, where I offer an opinion on a complex issue that has only just come to my attention. Um, I think another temptation would be that because I, and I, you know, received my um, advanced degree kind of later in life. I'm 46, and I guess I got the PhD around when I was 40 or 41. But to um, become so, um, to get so theoretical in my thinking that I'm no longer receiving wisdom from um, folks that I might be tempted to think of as least less thoughtful. Um so snobbery, certainly becoming closed off, um, being so committed to theory that you're not thinking about practice anymore. Um, but I think the big one would be to vainly presume that I have wisdom on particular subjects um, just because a pretty good number of people have been reading the words I've laid down on a page. Is there a shadow side of that too? Can you go the other way too far? Like we're, you know, not – putting stuff out there because of the per- perfectionist fear 
Like, hey, it's yeah, just not quite absolutely. right. It's just that. Uh, so rather than proffer something, a witness to the world that really could, but, you know, That's I got to right. tweak it and tweak it and tweak it and tweak it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's also the danger of just keeping it, hiding it under a bushel, keeping whatever insight I have to myself for fear that people are going to think that it's not thoughtful enough or um, fear that I'm going to look um, silly in some way. Um, this too, the, the phrase that keeps coming back to me when it comes to my binge watching or my love of comic books or pop music is that we get to hold our enthusiasms out with open hands. And I try to do that and not think too much about who might think this is silly or who might think that I'm weighing in um, where I don't really have a right to uh, speak with what I hope is a prophetic voice to complex situations. Yeah, I see. that's the flip side, right? Because if you if you really, when people say, I really don't care what other people think, well, you'd be a horrible person if you didn't care what other people that's think. Right. But, but right. then also not to go the other way and be controlled yeah. by reception. Um, mm-hmm. Somewhere in, in the middle of that is probably where there's a creative humility. Yeah, and to be willing to back down when somebody um, says, well, when you put it that way, that means this, and to kind of receive the witness of folks who um, aren't persuaded by something I've said in my teaching, my writing is really informed by my teaching because I stand in front of teenagers, early 20 somethings about every day. And if I drop something on them um, and I say, do you know what I mean? And they say, no, I get to try and uh, put it differently right then and there. And my writing requires that pinch. Um, Thank God for your work. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me and the Mockingbird listeners and fans. And uh, once again, your book is Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. And I would commend it. That's me in the spot. Welcome back to the Mockingcast. As usual, I have with me Sarah Condon hey. in Texas yep. and David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist <laughs> in Virginia, the home. He's in the Mockingbird bunker, the fortress of solitude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually not solid. So, uh, there's no solitude here whatsoever, but I will. Uh, I, I like the, putting that image in people's minds. Let me tell you guys something. I am so thrilled to be alive right now. Why is that, Scott? And this is because this I my for my birthday, which I had a karaoke birthday party for which I sang "Creep" from Radiohead, which I've never done, and I feel like I nice. I mean, I do a great George Michael, I do a great Bob Dylan, but I've never tried Radiohead, and I feel like it, is, it was a big hit. Is that going to be the second part of the podcast? It's not. Or are we just going to wait a second? It's wait a second, Scott. For, I do. I've been told now that I do a pretty good Scott Jones. You do? Yeah. Wow. I like that. You got the animating force of the Christian zeitgeist. Dave Zoll. How's it going? <laughs> but see, then when I go existential, yeah. it's more meaningful <laughs> because I kind of – it's the power of the rhetorical pause. Yeah. But that is a pretty good cool. meme uh, in all seriousness. So I got movie tickets and I'm going to see – the day it comes out, Batman v Superman, because I, I, all my doubts about Ben Affleck, I think, are being assuaged as I watch the trailers. But I want to say that I came across this is totally free promotion for the Imaginary Worlds podcast. It's actually done by a guy 
in San Francisco about the imaginary worlds we create and why we do them. So the first one I listened to was all about Looney Tunes backgrounds and the unique art form to like animate Wile E. Coyote and this Roadrunner and the Acme trucks and the sort of, and he just did one called Why They Fight. And I'm sad that I know this, but in Dungeons and Dragons, there's these alignment charts and your character has to be one of nine alignments. And there's two factors. One is good, neutral, evil. And then the other is lawful, uh, neutral, and chaotic. So if you're a goody two-shoes, you're lawful good, right? Like Superman. If you're the Joker that burns money just to see it burn, you know, like, I'm I'm not a schemer. You know, like he says to Two-Face, like, you're chaotic evil. Like, you could be chaotic good, really want to preserve human life and a lover of the true, the good, the beautiful, but you don't love the system like Batman or Robin Hood. Or you could be lawful good like, you know, Superman or Spock in Star Trek. Or you could be neutral good like Captain Kirk, who's a good guy and is he rises in the ranks of Starfleet, but actually doesn't mind bending the rules when he thinks it's for the greater good. So the, this guy's point is the two biggest superhero films now feature conflict not between good and evil as the centerpiece but conflict between the goods versus the lawful good you know versus the chaotic good types so i think that's just awesome yeah i think um i think you're on to something I, I i'll be interested to see how much these films actually gross because when i look at them i think that there's a there's a little too much going on in them and it feels like a superman film that they roped batman into though i do like the fact that they're sort of taking off on the the on how lousy that last Batman, uh, sorry, Superman film was, uh, but what's his face? Frank Miller, his uh, the, the 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 great comic creator, always pitched. He really he's he almost exaggerated how much of a goody two shoes, how much of the, the Boy Scout uh, Superman was, and he's this guy who always follows orders and can never sort of see the forest from the trees. Whereas Batman is really uh, after a much more personalized but higher form of. Of good, so he would. Um, I, I say that by means of like that. This is why it's so hard to get people interested in Superman because he not only he's like the opposite of Roman Seven, right? He he knows what's good and he can do it. Batman yeah. mm-hmm. uh, is still a sort of a glory story, but he knows what's good and um, he uh, he knows what other people think is good. He knows what he thinks is good, and he he can almost do it, but. Um, he, it's why, but Batman's sort of almost married to like a higher form of good than than Superman is. So that's why he's always been more existential, more interesting to people, and it's so much more difficult to get people involved, uh, interested emotionally, in uh, in Superman. And it feels like a niche. Yeah, this is yeah. What's interesting in the last one, they got so much fan uh, criticism because he broke General Zod's neck. Oh yeah, right. Like he, you know, he. And everybody was like, Superman would never kill someone. Like, so mm-hmm. it's interesting. It's almost like in this one, it looks like Superman's the, the chaotic character. And it looks like Batman thinks that this, that if Superman could like oppress the world, then we might have to get rid of him. So it's an interesting mm. like kind of twist. And I do love in the Frank Miller graphic novel where Soup Clark says to Bruce Wayne, Bruce, I mean, Ronald Reagan's like the perennial Nixon. He keeps getting reelected. And he, now Superman's a tool for the state. He says, Bruce, I mean, if you keep doing these things, I don't know what they're going to make me do. And he's like, Clark, you don't get it. They can't make you do anything. <laughs> Batman is the <laughs> ultimate libertarian. Uh, Scott, which, one are, which uh, one are you and which one do you think Sarah is? Sarah is chaotic good. Definitely. You think Sarah? Definitely. Thanks. 
Thanks, like, if, like if you see, like you're a wonderful soul, but if you saw a walk, don't walk on the grass line, you'd walk on it. Oh, totally. She's like yeah. a vigilante priest, yeah. right? Kind of like. Well, I just always find myself in like staff meetings where everyone else is speaking more calmly. Than me. <laughs> That's often priest by day, vigilante like. by night. Actually, the most rebellious thing uh, that's happened at my work ever is that there's a library at our church, and um, I checked out a book on Luther when I first started there and use it a lot, right, and kind of kept it hanging around and thought, I'm a priest there, so I'll just keep using it. Well, then I got a phone call about the fact that it needed to be returned, and I still haven't returned it, and it's two years (laughs) later, because I'm like... I'm gonna keep this book on Luther. There you go. What are they gonna Get do? Your library rules. They, yeah, what are they gonna so, do? Wrong, anyway. uh, girl and the wrong book. <laughs> exactly. That's right. David, are you like you're you're um, neutral evil? Yeah, I, Just kidding. Well, that's funny. I think that I'm. Uh, I would like to be chaotic good, but I'm actually more neutral good. Um, it's it's probably the lamest of the all the. Though I guess if you know if we're gonna get theological about it. We're all some form of the, the the evil, right? I mean, we're all like the neutral. Right. We're we're not the uh, yeah. yeah, but where are we aspirational? And that's what it's actually a... most of these long form dramas that people get so interested in is because not because people are various shades of good, but because they're all various shades of of not good. <laughs> we, we don't want to use the e word, but they're all they're various shades of sort of self involved and and how that right? Yeah, and the more authentic they seem, we like it. Like Breaking Bad. Like the the brother in law, you hate him in the beginning, and you kind of like him in the end because he seems more self aware. He's in the same role. Well, this is why, also, you know, to make it a theological a theological lens, also, like it's very easy to be lawful evil. Like it's very easy to keep the rules for the purposes of destroying life. You know, Jesus says this subject. Come on, if you're an animal film, think which one of you wouldn't. So sometimes, at their worst moments, in all of our worst moments. We keep the law exactly to inflict pain. Yeah. Yeah, sort of like a Skeletor. Exactly. Which we, we're going to have more. I think we exhausted Skeletor. In the show, in the future. He-Man. I was like, are we going to do Skeletor? <laughs> no. Again? We can't. No. <laughs> no. Should have been somebody serious note let's talk criticism david mm-hmm. ao scott's book is is it out yet it's out we have a copy in the office but of course I've, i haven't actually read it but i've read a lot of the criticism of it <laughs> um, so you've read the criticism of the book about criticism well what uh, the 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 okay so i i like ao scott and i think that that that's a very common uh, opinion about him is that he's you know very likable and that he always offers interesting quote unquote takes on things. But then one of the critics who I respect, I guess uh, on a more uh, philosophical level, is uh, Leon Wieseltier, who used to work for the New Republic. Um, and now, please tell me his wife didn't have to take that name if they got if he's married. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm making. Maybe, what if she's like a Brandy, Brandy Smith? I'm just I'm just using the yeah. German pronunciation. But he he's a really really thoughtful guy. Um, sort of a, I guess a 
he would be classified as a more left-wing critic, but he's of the old school of like the Pauline Kale school. And he took this book and ripped it to shreds for the Atlantic. And one of the things, uh, you know, I don't want to get too into the, you know, into depth about the, um, in, inside baseball and criticism, but what he says is that A.O. Scott is emblematic because this affects us as people that work on – that do a lot of blogging, internet writing, and even, you know, of course, uh, podcasting. He says that A.O. Scott's book is um, indicative of the uh, – or, or exemplary of our current culture of hot takes – you know, everyone's got a hot take on things. And, you know, we, we fall into that too because we've got convictions about things. But what he says is that with Scott, uh, a take is something you offer a thoughtful comment on something and then you move on. There's actually no commitment to any larger set of values, any larger overarching ideology. Now, that's something I don't think that could be a quote unquote criticism lobbed at Mockingbird since we've, it's, it's for us, it's like a, a lot of times the, the, the overarching law and gospel and theology of the cross and just essentially the Jesus uh, component of our uh, work is, is there already. And a lot of stuff is extrapolated from that, or at least seen through that lens. Um, but that, that desire, you don't, you don't want to be committed to any system that might tie you down. And this is something we've talked about in other ways. It's something that I, you know, I know that you interviewed David Dark this week, and that's what he talks about in his book. When you call someone religious, you've essentially flattened them. You put them into a straitjacket where you can then, um, write them off. But to, um, he says that, that so, so to fear commitment to an ideological framework is actually uh, cowardly, but also um, uh, it's a way of covering up that you have nothing larger to say, uh, and it's a way of um, trying to escape the straight, the ultimate straitjacket, which is death. Yeah, it's interesting. I think T.S. Eliot said he loved Henry James, and he said Henry James had a mind that was like a sieve so fine, no idea could penetrate it. <laughs> And by idea, he meant ideology. And I think that they, you know, Eliot said that we should always privilege description over explanation, that philosophers always come up with explanations. Then their system is made to sort of straitjacket reality into the explanation. Whereas I describe something, like if we're all looking at, you know, a rose bush, you could be at an opposite side of the rose bush where the sun is in a different relationship to it. And your description adds to mine. Because of different vantage. So I think that, like, you know, explanation and prescription, right, is the death of criticism. Like, when you're not describing, but what you're prescribing. Yeah. So I, so I think when you describe things, it, it, with the end, so you can be committed to the good, the beautiful, the true, the gracious, and describe reality by trying to tease out where you find that, mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of telling people, be committed to this. This is why we hate preachy movies and stuff like that. We like totally. art that, you know, we can find the beauty for ourselves. This is so much, this reminded me so much of, um, I don't know if David wants me to talk about this because I, you know, we don't want to call it the Episcopal church, but since I am chaotic, good, um, <laughs> let it burn, baby. Let it burn. <laughs> there's the a, head. there's this great, uh, this great link. I sent you guys the, um, Episcopal church's, uh, sermon bingo. And I kept thinking of this when I was reading the piece on A.O. Scott, because you know, the, there's that whole thing about where the, the appeal of this so-called take is, um, is that it's interesting, but not that it really does anything. And, you know, uh, he says a take asks for no affiliation and requires no commitment. 
and we've got to put a link up to this Episcopal Church bingo because it, it says stuff, you know, so it's about like preaching sermons in the Episcopal Church and, you know, are these things that you've done before? And it's things like the priest sings from the pulpit poorly, mm-hmm. you know, or the priest references Downton Abbey. And I I think this is relevant, you know, certainly it's broader than just the Episcopal Church. I mean, you could put the Methodist Church on there. You could put any, you know, a lot of mainline Christian denominations. So if you're like at the Acts 29 church plant, like, preacher says, let's make much of Christ or all for the glory of God. Right, you know? Exactly. It's like we we do live in this culture where people just say things and they're just interesting enough that everyone sort of agrees and then they don't really mean well, anything. Well, uh, that was what the brilliance actually, uh, the unspoken brilliance of that TED, that TED talk about nothing that I put up earlier this mm-hmm. week, where the guy just yeah. he he says nothing in a very compelling, in a way that he th- thinks you're saying something, and it's it kind of uh, uh, it really should every preacher should watch that. Um, that video, I thought that the Sarah along those lines where, where it's Episcopal Church sermon bingo, if they talk about love in an overly general way and just injustice <laughs> in an overly specific way, I thought that was right. Um, <laughs> that's way too close to the bone. You know, they also was brilliant. if they quote Brene Brown. I mean, it's there's a there's right. a real like oh man, right, <laughs> right. I was a fan of the priest never mentions Jesus Christ. (laughs) Like I, I remember in seminary that was like always a warning when we were like in homiletics class. They were like, you know, you need a high Jesus count. Like we needed to be reminded, you know, like at least mention him a few times, like amidst the Brene Brown quotes and their references to like poetry you read. So yeah, Yeah, it's if you're like a Catholic mass or a high Episcopal tradition. When they, you know, the sermon's over, like, as we come to this Eucharist, it's like, that's like, put your tray tables up, lock right. your seatbelts in, we're now making them to say, that's your tell, that's the tell, it's coming, it's coming, as we come to this Eucharist. That is so, so funny. Well, we're going to put a link to that, and also, uh, feel free, if you're here and not an Episcopalian, to generate your own and send them back to us. We love mail, we love feedback, especially if it's positive or funny. One other thing I want to take a look at that we have in another week ends is something about psychology that you came across, David, that I think is pretty interesting, that actually unsettles uh, some of what is the common prevailing wisdom, right, about the ego depletion movement. Yes. Ego depletion is uh, something that has come up quite a bit on our website over the years because it has to do with the the finite amounts of willpower, that people have willpower, but it's like a muscle that it could be the more you exercise it, the the less you have, or or you can build it up. But if you have spent the morning, um, you know, in a self-control mode, trying not to uh, eat a cookie, you're going to be much more likely to um, eat it in the afternoon. 
or that they, they, there's there's all sorts of experiments that have gone into this. If you if you if you put someone, uh, I think one of the famous ones is uh, someone will have a lot less willpower if they spend all morning trying to talk to someone of another race, because there's so much control about you're filtering yourself, wanting to make sure you're not coming off as offensive, or that you're you know you're really second guessing everything you're saying um hyper vigilant about your speech and then in the afternoon or after that you will be much more likely to indulge in something that maybe uh that shows a lack of self-control so um but it's roy baumeister is the guy behind this and he's behind a lot of interesting uh psychology but um yeah, this, there's this rash of uh, attempts right now to reproduce these famous experiments that people have been dealing with for years and years and years, including like the Stanford Prison Experiment. And I guess recently they tried to reproduce uh, the a, a number of these studies because there were hundreds and hundreds of studies showing ego depletion as being a thing. And, you know, so it, theologically, when we talk about that there being a bound will, we're not talking about they're not you're not having a will. We're just saying that you 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 uh, you can choose between you know what does it say whiskey and beer, but you can't choose not to drink. You know, it's it's you still feel like you're choosing things. It just has has real limits, and that's basically what ego depletion says. But they couldn't really. Um, I didn't quite understand actually the holes that were punctured in this, but had to do with some lemonade experiment. And uh, suffice it to say, willpower does maybe not work that way, or at least quite the way they thought it did. And, and they're back to square one. And they interview the Slate article about this. They interview a bunch of these psychologists who are so demoralized by it. They're like, "Gosh, we're back to square one. I'm in a really dark place. I really don't know. It's much easier to tear something down than to build something up." And so they're having to like make do with much, much smaller uh, conclusions rather than this big idea that Baumeister had, had they were all taking sort of for granted and it, it kind of I, th I think makes it makes a lot of it feel a little futile because of the degree to which they have to prove things in order for them to be accepted as real gosh I think my ego is depleted after thinking about all these studies <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think doesn't this get back to what we we're just talking about about like uh, d descriptions are often supplemented by thicker descriptions. So there is something to this ego depletion thing. Like it, it, it really, it doesn't make sense. But if you're trying to make evidence-based research out of everything, so this is like why certain psychologists I know who are in, in kind of uh, positive psychology, like uh, cognitive behavioral stuff, it, well, we're evidence-based people. And a psychiatrist friend of mine who uh, is died, you know, a blessed memory, a dear friend, uh, but he used to tell me, he's like, look, I, I have an MD. Everything I do is a hermeneutical discipline. It, it's, it's, it's art. It's interpretation. It's un teasing out narratives. And so, I mean, even science, you're still, it's a more precise form of describing. Mm. But, but things, it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Things change as you study them. So there's no fixed kind of place to, so we always have to kind of, this is like perichoretic, perhaps. It's, people talk about the Trinity and, you can't think about the father without the son or the son without the spirit. And the father isn't even the father without the son. So like there's this kind of perichoretic nature to reality where all truths are relative to other truths and realities. Mm. Now my ego uh, is depleted. Yeah, because I don't know the word perichoretic. <laughs> perichoretic <laughs> I didn't use that man. one at Yale, man. So. Yeah. <laughs> I must have had morning sickness the day they talked about that word. Yeah. <laughs> 
from pregnancy or otherwise. Um, Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. It all keeps setting up. I think I'm pregnant. Am I just paranoid? Am I just up? Okay, and one last thing uh, on a more serious and uh, difficult note. Sarah, uh, I condolences. You wrote a piece about suicide because you lost a friend this week, and um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, but thank you for the courage um, and, and to write the piece you wrote. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So, and David and I have been talking about. You know, it's gotten this. It went up. Did it go up yesterday? And it's gotten this crazy response. I mean, lots of comments, lots of people sharing it, and um, behind the scenes. Too. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, and I, it's important, I think, to note, and I didn't put it in that piece, but I come from a family that's, you know, was profoundly touched by suicide. Um, my mom lost her dad uh, to suicide when she was very small, and then um, her brother later to, su- to suicide inadvertently. He was actually trying to rescue a woman who was trying to drown herself, and he drowned. Um, and so I grew up in one of those households, though, they just talked about it. Like, it was always, you know, when I asked where my grandfather was, they told me. And um, because miraculously, my grandmother in the Mississippi Delta just told my mom. They were just always very honest about it, which I think is very rare with suicide. I mean, I think it's something we don't talk about. I think it's usually at the top of the list of family secrets. Um so the response to this has been overwhelming. I didn't say anything revolutionary, but I think it's just because people are given a space to talk about it. So um, that's been very powerful. Yeah, I remember yeah. A, a conference we had a few years ago, and uh, someone was saying something. Uh, I think my R.J. Heyman was talking about. Uh, he was he was talking about suicide specifically and showing an example and uh, I thought gosh is this too too far is this uh, is he gone over the top um, he he should have not done this is this too extreme of an example and then uh, he did a sort of an informal poll afterwards about how many people had been affected by suicide and um, I mean half the half the hands in the room went up and and not these aren't people who had been affected sort of through the friend of a friend of a friend of an uncle it was people who lost an actual family member to suicide and it's we've written about it as an epidemic and something that's very real and taboo um but Sarah I was just so grateful for what you wrote and of course for that Luther clip which is uh it resounds in my mind too in my head my heart uh but golly, this is something that uh, needs to be talked about, and I'm so glad you did it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sarah. And you know, I think David, your dad has written about the nature of the law, and so is Frank Lake. I mean, who he studied with, like that. What the law does in us, the shaming and sort of accusatory power. A little part of us mm-hmm. dies. Like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to ask a person like that out again because I'll get rejected or I'm never going to make a sexual advance on my spouse again because of the cold shoulder or I'm never going to try that risk in the sermon because somebody said it was a little... And then, you know, what grace can sometimes do with the resurrection is it gets that, the, the abreactive thing, like it it brings out that dead part mm. like Lazarus that's wrapped up. But I think, so I think one of the reasons, not only because we hide so much about suicide that we're seeing so much response, but also because we do little self-executions 
uh, in ourselves. So like in some sense, an actual suicide is just uh, someone that's gone a little further down the road of a place we all are journeying every day by killing a thing so that it doesn't mm. wound us again. Um, so I, I thank you for wow. that, Tara. That's amazing. And thanks for, for, thanks for being with me again this week. And have a great weekend. Scott. You too, Scott. Bye, Sarah. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Mockingcast. This is a special episode dedicated to the blessed memory of Sarah Condon's recently deceased friend, Ron Walker, who was apparently a man of great energy and creativity, who lost a tragic battle with addiction. We commend our brother, Ron, to Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and pray that his healing has begun. <laughs>